Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash, making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no All right, welcome to Escaping Society, Episode 9, Drain on Society. My name's Gumby. I'm Teresa. And we are in the balmy, tropic warmth of the Piedmont of North Carolina right now. Um, (laughs) While we're still muscling, now halfway, about through our summer camp season. Um, At least until they run us out of town, tarred and feathered. So, (laughs) um, Really what this episode is about is it started off with a question that we get asked sometimes with what we talk about and the way we live. And I find it to be a very good question. It's a provocative and challenging question. And it gets asked in different forms, but what it amounts to is basically this. How do you justify benefiting from a society you're not contributing to? Um, I feel like I've been challenged on that in many different forms and many different ways over the years. So I'd like to address that because it is a good question. I get asked a lot of stupid questions and, uh, you know, this one stands out as like, hmm, let me think about that. Because we are, in fact, benefiting. We drive on the roads. We drive a van that we don't know how to make. Some other people had to make and, you know, all the things that go into making a vehicle. Um, we eat food that other people made. They're thrown in a dumpster, packaged. Um, and let's not forget the dumpster itself. So we're definitely benefiting from what the society is doing. And we are trying to withdraw from, from contributing to that. So I would say in that way, both scavengers and consumers benefit. You know, a scavenger, like we identify with, often we contrast ourselves with the consumers, but we both benefit from the society. I would say there's three words that pop out in that sentence to me. Um, How do you justify benefiting, that's one, from a society, that's two. You're not contributing, that's three, two. So let's first look at the first word. And I think this is the juiciest word in the sentence. Benefiting. What do we mean by benefiting? Yeah, that's a good point because uh, we are living in a society that it hasn't always been this way. So when I think of remembering the skills that our ancestors had and thinking about how they could feed themselves, clothe themselves build shelters and provide everything that they needed in harmony with the land. I think about why we can't do that now. And the phrase, the game is rigged, comes up in my mind. Because this society has taken our natural way of surviving and created laws so that basically everything that we used to do 
has become illegal in some way. If I want to be semi-nomadic or nomadic and walk across the land, I'm trespassing. If I want to fish to provide my family food, I have to get a fishing license or else I'm illegally fishing. And I understand that there are some reasons behind laws to supposedly help with, you know, like saving, you know, people from taking too much. Yeah, and can I add a couple more? Like hunting, you can't hunt season round now without being a poacher. Mm -hmm. Um, And you also can't forage in a lot of places without, like Teresa said, either you're on private land or you're in a park that always has a sign, don't take away um, these plants, these things. And I think you're about to say what I'm going to say, so I'll shut up for a minute, Teresa. Well, (laughs) I I was just going to say, linking it back to how do you justify benefiting from society when you're not contributing to it? The game is rigged. You really either have to play along with society or you're an outlaw. And Gumby, I'll pass it over to you. Yeah, and uh, in line with that, the game being rigged, you know, as long as you're playing the game, as long as you've decided you're going to contribute to society, you're going to put your full faith in society. If anything's going to get better, it's going to come from the society, which, let's forget for a moment, got us here. Um (laughs) then everything's fine. You know, all those rules make sense. Poaching, sure, we're protecting the deer, right? Uh, Fishing license, again, we're protecting the fish because we're a society that cares about life on this planet. Um, (laughs) Taking wild plants from the park. Well, this is a nature preserve for God's sakes. Of course you don't take the plants. But consider if you have decided that this game doesn't make sense to you anymore, that maybe just trying to protect a little park which gets managed at the whim of the powers that be, the government, um, maybe that doesn't make sense to you anymore. Maybe you are starting to think, well, what if the future possibly needs more than tiny, tiny little spots of land on this huge globe? And so I want to become independent of the society. I want to begin something that might be better. Like Teresa said, you have to be an outlaw. Suddenly to forage, you're probably going to have to trespass somewhere. I uh, took classes with a certain herbalist in Hillsborough, and one of the things I loved about him is he was not shy about trespassing. He'd tell you right out, we're going to have to do some trespassing. It's just <laughs> something that you learn. Um, <laughs> there's no way around it because the game is rigged against you. So if you're not fitting in this society, that's kind of a group that our society um, starts calling a drain on society. You're benefiting and not contributing in the way society would approve of. Um Gosh, I wanted to talk about the history of that, how we got here a little bit, but it's kind of hard to know where to jump in because this is a 10,000-year-old story. When we say society, um, at least the way I use the word, I'm talking about our culture. I'm not talking about countries. I'm not even talking about America. I'm talking about a culture that has now swallowed the globe. And there's certain things that everybody in this culture agrees with, like food has to be under lock and key, as Daniel Quinn says. If you want to eat, you're going to have to work. You're going to have to make money. You're going to have to buy it. Um, There are certain common elements all over the world in this world culture we have now that are unique to this culture. We take them for granted, but before that spread all over the world, you would not find these traits in any tribe. The Apache, the Kalahari Bushmen, um, the Aborigines of Australia, food's free. It's the Garden of Eden. This is something we invented to make our society function, to keep us working, to keep us contributing to society. Hmm. So... Gosh, I guess I'll just jump in maybe in Europe. Um, yeah, before 
the colonists started coming over to the New World. We take for granted land ownership, but this is actually a pretty recent invention. It started not long before Columbus set sail, and I don't have that year in my head, but uh, a really good book on it is, I hope I get the title right, but it's An Indigenous People's History of the United States, and I think it's by Roxana... Oh, God, I don't dare say her last name, but hopefully that's enough to maybe Google that book Um, because I don't want to get it wrong. I'd rather just leave it blank. Mm -hmm. Um, But she talks about how land ownership started being another tool of class hierarchy. The rich and the powerful started this land ownership, how they began it, what the propaganda was behind it. I'm not sure. I don't know. But suddenly... You know, they framed it in such a way that, well, I tell you what, we're going to own this land. This land actually belongs to this human being. And if you want to use this land, that's fine. But you work for this human being, serfdom. And most people, you know, they didn't have anything to trade, so they became um, in debt. They were at a big disadvantage. So this land ownership was a tool used to oppress the poor, was a tool used to empower the rich, the dukes and the earls and you know, all those grand folks. Um, And one of the groups that most got hit the hardest by this new land ownership, this new strategy, was the Scotch-Irish. The Scotch-Irish, there was famine after famine. And by the way, if you start really looking into the history of our culture, that 10,000-year-old story, it is a continuous revolt. There has always been an element of revolution. There's always been a significant portion of the population that said, no, we are not being served. We want to fight this. That's been significant. Some people think it started in the 60s. Some people think, you know, it was, they think of the French Revolution. These are just tiny pieces of the story that we don't get taught a lot unless you start looking for it. There has been a continuous revolution trying to break out for 10, well, I can't testify to 10,000 years, but for several thousand years. Um, and so these Scotch-Irish, they don't have any land. They're starving. There are famines. They're desperate. They're desperate people. And now they have the opportunity with this new world. There's this new land that's opened up, and there's these deals being made. If you can go over there, you can own land. All you have to do is go over there. They downplayed that it was already already populated. They downplayed the dangers. So imagine being one of these colonists. You're not a bad person. You're not evil. But there's this system that you can't see your way out of, and you're at the bottom of it. These are kind of the first, uh, I don't want to say the first slaves, but it was a new flavor of slavery. They were at the bottom. They were in debt. They were trying to escape this oppressiveness. So they come over to the New World for an opportunity. Lo and behold, there's these red and brown people running around, half naked, setting fire to their own land, for God's sakes. They're not building big houses. They're not trying to be rich. They're obviously insane (laughs) by our standards. So we're going over there. We're desperate. And all you want to do is take care of your kids and feed your family. And the only way to do that, to give them a chance, is to find some way to own this land. So one of the strategies that started happening before we even got to America, it started happening in Ireland and Scotland, is inundate places with your population. Send in swarms of people, numbers of people. That's what happened um, around England and Ireland. That was occupied for quite some time by people that didn't want to be part of our culture, the culture we currently reside in. Um, And one of the strategies used was the Romans, the Greeks, the people of this culture started sending in people. They got overwhelmed. And guess what happened in America? We'd refine that strategy. So now we used it again, Scotch-Irish. 
Um, a lot of other people too, but the Scotch-Irish are right there on the front. They were poor, they were desperate, they were hungry, and when they got to this land, they were ready to do anything it took to take care of their poor, starving families. My goodness, you set me up for that. <laughs> <clears throat> well, so the game is rigged. We've already said that. And we're trying to answer or or argue of how do we justify benefiting from society when we're not contributing to it. So let's take a look at what we did to the Indians of North America. So we come over here and we basically steal the land that they have been using to sustain their life ever since the beginning of people on that continent. And we tell them, no, you can't have this land anymore. And we're going to kill all of the buffalo that you hunt and sustain your tribes off of. And we're going to take away even your language and we're going to take your children and teach them our ways so that you forget how you once lived in harmony with the land. And then we're going to make all of you wards of the state on the reservation and you're going to be dependent on what the government gives you and we're going to look down upon you for that. Yeah, a.k.a. drain on society. Um, <laughs> so they just created a drain on society when, in fact, there wasn't one when the Indians were doing what they wanted to do and live their life. And so, again, referring to this book... Um, I could try to find it. Yeah. So Teresa's going to try to find that now while I run my mouth. <laughs> but she talks so beautifully about a lot of this stuff. And uh, if I get some of my facts wrong, forgive me. Please read this book if this is a topic that interests you because she's a much better researcher than I am. But this strategy, let's remember that they came over here and we already knew one way to win a war was numbers. Like, um, you know, we were creating a food surplus. Overpopulation has been a concern for a long time. This is not a new topic that just came up in the century. This is something that people realized was happening for centuries and centuries. Um, and the name of that book is Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. So she points out that this strategy was already in place. So the first thing we do is numbers of people. And if you wonder how savage the first um, indigenous peoples were in America, consider the fact that the first colonists came over on boats. It wasn't a fleet. It was like one, two, three boats at a time in a country that was very much inhabited. Lots of people here. The fact that they ever got a foothold speaks to the generosity of those indigenous peoples. Even Columbus talked about, with admiration, about the indigenous peoples he ran into, how generous they were. Mm -hmm. At the same time, he's doing horrible things to them, capturing some of them, bringing them back as slaves to, to show, you know, look at this generous person I caught. <laughs> um so the colonists got a foothold, and any time there was any kind of disagreement, we started using one of our strategies, diplomacy. We talk our way out of it. Oh, we, we just want a little bit. We just want enough to survive. You know, we've even got this paper here, and if we sit down and talk about it, we can come to an agreement that'll work for your people, that'll work for my people. Another thing that worked against the Native Americans was intertribal uh, conflict. This was something that kept the tribes strong before our culture got there. It was kind of a good thing. Um, the Lakota didn't like the crow. The crow didn't like somebody else. This is a good thing. If it was just completely peaceful, people would have gotten soft. And this was kind of a kind of lifestyle that you want to be able to test yourself. You want to be able to, 
empower yourself and stretch yourself and challenge yourself to be strong. Um, so the occasional raid, the occasional battle was a good thing. It rarely turned into something that would, if ever, that we would call a war, where a tribe was in danger of being wiped out completely. Um, but suddenly that strategy doesn't work. So now these, there's these settlers, and one tribe's vying for trade with the, the settlers and makes agreements with them, and the settlers are introducing a new strategy. They are trying to win at any cost. They are totally willing to wipe out an entire people. This is something that wouldn't even occur to most indigenous people. Why would you wipe out your enemy? Your enemy is how you know you're strong. You have a good enemy. Um, so this Indian strategy, it started spreading and spreading. We got more land, and much like the situation a lot of us find ourselves in now, it wasn't caught in time. Um, it got really strong, and it spread, and, you know, the, along with that, there's the smallpox that's spreading. So we're meeting tribes that, on first contact, they're already decimated by disease. Mm. And one of the things Roxanne points out in her book is that if you look at military manuals now, there are still, like, we refined our war strategies on the Indians of North America. There's already, there's still words in there, like going Apache, off the reservation, that remember this. Um, and the strategy was used to destroy their tribe, to destroy the sacred circle, as I've read in, uh, in some books, I believe Black Elk is a good book for that. Um, where he describes everything being in a sacred circle and that that got destroyed. Mm -hmm. That's one of our strategies, destroy a people and then help them. Now think <laughs> about that. You've destroyed a people so completely they can't live by themselves anymore, whether it's through disease, whether it's through they can't move on their land anymore. You've just wrapped around these people. They called it manifest destiny in the 1800s. It was a way of saying, this is unavoidable. We can't make another choice. We obviously have to continue because this is what society does. It's our destiny. And anybody listening to this podcast probably still believes that. It sounds pretty ugly when I spell it out, but consider, hell, consider any episode of Star Trek you've ever watched. <laughs> you know, the prime directive, don't mess with this species until they're technologically advanced, until they've fulfilled their destiny because they're kind of bumbling children until then, right? Not <laughs> worth talking to. So this is an old philosophy of our culture. Um, and these bumbling children became dependent because we destroyed their land base. We destroyed their independence. And now, benevolently, we offer to put them on reservations so they'd be protected and don't worry about it, anything. We'll trade with you. We'll bring you meat. We'll bring you everything you need. You don't have to worry about anything because we care about you. We're good people. And we all know how that went. I don't think I need to really go into detail of that part of history. Um, we know how well the reservations worked for the people. We've all heard about the Trail of, che the Trail of Tears. Um, and this is a way that our society has made people dependent. Um, and now, guess what? They're benefiting from a society. And if they don't contribute to this society, they're shamed. They're bums. They're whatever insult we can throw at them. Hell, you're getting meat from us. You didn't hunt that anymore. You didn't get this food. Like, you can't grow enough food for your family, which, by the way, hint, hint, maybe you're just that inept. Um, so now, why don't you fight our wars for us? Why don't you come and join us in the workforce? You need to contribute to the society that's taken such good care of you. Huh. So that's what I mean by the game is rigged. Um, what the hell else are they supposed to do? What the hell else are we supposed to do, those of us who don't want to contribute to the society or be a part of it anymore? And then let's move on to the slaves. You know, we go over to Africa, we go over to other parts of the world, and we're already making slaves out of some of the Native Americans. 
and then we find the black indigenous tribes of Africa. Once again, they've been there for a long time. They're doing fine. Their way of life suits them. It works. They're not destroying their land base. They got plenty to eat. They got contented people. And as I've said, our culture is a story of a revolution about to break out almost in its entire history. How many revolutions do you hear about to break out in any indigenous tribe? These are contented people. Mm-hmm. These are people that we're fine being left alone. You want to trade with us? Sure. You know, shiny new object, never seen it before? Cool, I'll trade for that. And uh, the more I've read, the more I think that's a lot of indigenous people's downfall is because when you start to trade with the devil, you become dependent on the devil. Gandhi saw that. He told all the people of India when they started rebelling against the uh, British occupation, don't wear their clothes. Don't trade with them. If all you can make is a ratty old piece of homespun cloth like I wrap around myself, take pride in that. What he was saying is exactly this thing I'm talking about. Don't trade. So as time went on, some of the tribes thought they needed guns. They began to give up the bows. I mean, let's face it, a gun is a pretty damn effective hunting weapon. And in hindsight, some of us can start to see the uh, hidden cost of such a thing. Mm -hmm. They didn't. You know, it was just benefit. People would show up and they could hunt really well with this gun, so why not? But now they're dependent. And that leads to everything else. You know, I talked about the reservation, the dependence, the camps outside of the forts. Forts ended up being these little outposts out west that had teepees all around them of poor Indians that couldn't live the way they used to take pride in anymore. And they took care of their despondence the way we do. They drank. They grabbed something to just kind of numb themselves. Too bad they didn't have Facebook back then, right? (laughs) So we got these black people, we bring them over, we start working them, and, you know, slavery and yada yada, we all we know all that, you know, America got built on the backs of black slaves, and now it's color-coded, so it's really cool. You see a black person, he's probably either a slave or an escaped slave, he's somebody you better question, um, which takes us to the Civil War. The Civil War, you know, as they say, the history is told by the victors, so we get to hear the northern version. Um which kind of implies that the North had some sort of moral epiphany. They didn't believe in slavery anymore. And these backwards rednecks down South um, wanted to keep their slaves. So out of the kindness for the black man, the North told them they couldn't do it anymore. The Civil War breaks out. And thank goodness the North won because that was the end of slavery. Benevolent Lincoln signed this emancipation bill and, you know, everything's been great since then, right? (laughs) So, um, one of the things that gets left out of that story is the Industrial Revolution. Around the time the Civil War is breaking out, not long before that, the Industrial Revolution happened in England with much protesting. The Luddites and many other groups were against these machines, these factories, the pollution they produced, the class hierarchy. So suddenly people are getting really powerful and rich. Best tool since land ownership. Um, And in the middle of all this revolt, this industrialization is spreading across the globe. And where is the main port in America back then to England, Europe? New York, the North. So the North is more quickly embracing industrialization. Um, They're embracing with these machines a new idea of how to treat people. And I'm going to explore that idea a little bit more in just a minute, but... Let's contrast that with the South. They're still agricultural. And before this happened, everybody owned slaves. The first slaves were pouring into the North. There was no higher integrity in the North than the South. Everybody used people because they wanted to be rich. And slaves, nobody had a problem with that. Well, I shouldn't say nobody. 
there's always been some people that resisted the flow, but the majority, there was no difference between North and South. Um, so as this war breaks out, it's a war of a new way of living that benefits the North. The North has industrialization. The North is making factories. The Civil War was the first war that got fought with factory-made guns, with factory-made things, factory-made even shoes. Before the Civil War, there was no left and right shoe. That got invented during the Civil War. Then now there's a certain shoe for the left foot, a certain shoe for the right foot. It was a commercial jamboree, mm -hmm. the Civil War. And as always happens, it's the damn poor people. Poor people fighting poor people. Um, for the rich. For the rich. The rich, either they're not fighting at all or quickly they, like in the South, the Confederate Army, um, towards the end of the Civil War, they came up with this rule that if you own 10 or more slaves, you can back out of the Civil War. Um, the Free State of Jones is a great movie that talks about that. But like always happens, it's the poor and the desperate that have to fight the wars, the Scotch-Irish that get sent into the hostile territory of America and don't know what they're getting into. And now the poor farmers and the poor immigrants for the North. Um, there was a huge protest during the Civil War in New York where a lot of black people got lynched and, and killed. And this is supposedly in the Great North where uh, racism is being fought against. Mm -hmm. Racism was rampant. This wasn't about racism. This was about industry. Um, yeah, look into that riot in New York. It was one of the ugliest riots there were, and it was it was just completely aimed. It started to be aimed at the rich, but then, as so often happens, the poor fight each other. And that's a tragedy that happens over and over. That is the Civil War. The poor are fighting each other instead of recognizing that the rich are using them. The black people and the white people could have teamed up, and maybe we'd be living in a different world now if somebody could have seen that and, like, convinced people. Um... Civil War ends. And by the way, Lincoln, he was not the big champion of black people that people portray him now. I've seen a, a couple movies about him, and it's always a roll my eyes, like, God, read your history. Before he got pressured by other people to kind of tuck this emancipation bill in, he didn't lift a finger to help the black people. Um, there's even, gosh, there's certain bills he passed, and there are things he said in front of Congress that... Uh, would shock a lot of people, and damn, I didn't do my homework. I don't have those things, but start looking, digging a little bit, dig a little deeper into Lincoln. Um, we like to make a hero out of him that he doesn't necessarily deserve any more than any president. That I mean, they've all got a, a sordid, bad history when you start looking closer. Slaves are released, emancipation, supposedly they're freed, just let go. They're all supposed to get, what was it, a mule, mm -hmm. 10 acres and a mule or something? Something like that. Which most of them didn't get. And they don't know how to live. Like a lot of the, the Southerners were saying, we're actually taking care of our slaves. You don't get it. You guys are up there saying we got to release our slaves and that's going to make us beggars. We don't have enough to go around. Like this is how we make a living. They don't know how to make a living. They've been slaves their whole life. And the reason why you guys are so high handed is you're all working in factories now and you've got people in debt. It's not like a big wave of freedom. It's a different kind of slavery. And that's what the black people got sucked into, wage slavery. So back during the Civil War, buying a slave cost about as much as buying a house. Think about that. You buy a slave, you have made a huge investment. You're taking care of that slave. last thing you want to do is buy a house and it falls apart in 10 years. Mm -hmm. last thing you want to buy is a slave and he gets sick and dies of pneumonia. So you might not give him any more than you can get away with because, you know, you don't <laughs> – that's the ethic you're taught. 
but you want him to stay alive. He's your worker. After we abandon plantations and agriculture and factories start popping up, now in the South, all over America, there's factories. There's a new strategy that's needed. It doesn't make any sense to invest in one worker in that way anymore. Um, he's only one worker. Mm-hmm. We start implementing wage slavery. I used to think that was just somebody complaining about their job. Oh, I'm a wage slave. And I'd be like, I get over it, buddy. You know, like, but it's a legitimate thing. Um, people become disposable. So now you hire somebody, you don't have to care for their needs. You barely pay them enough to get by, if that. And it's up to them to take care of their health care. You're not invested in that person because if they die, there's so many poor and desperate people, and boy, the rich love the poor and desperate because they will line up to take any job, any scrap of crumb, because all they can see is what's right in front of them, and that's feeding their poor, hungry family. Mm-hmm. So disposable people, the new wage slavery comes into play. And um, the first hobos, by the way, were right after the Civil War. All these poor people, they fought in the Civil War, and this may sound familiar, but they get done with the Civil War. They got PTSD, and this government, who they fought for, doesn't take care of them. Wow. Yeah. Even uh, as far as back then. Yeah, alien concept, (laughs) right? Yeah. At the same time, trains are being introduced. You know, we're doing all this crap simultaneously to the Indians, running railroads right through their territory. Uh, Crazy horses out there fighting successfully against the army until we play dirty, as dirty as as we can, because if there's one thing our culture's going to do, it's anything, anything to win. There is nothing we won't rape or kill or maim as long as we come out winners at the end. There's no honor among us, not among our government for sure. So Crazy Horse is out there fighting. One of the things he's fighting is this railroad going through. Railroads are starting to spread across the country. We've got all these soldiers, nothing else to do. Some of them get signed up to fight the Indian Wars out west. That's the next thing they go to after the Civil War. And then they're in these troops where you're, you just shot at these Yankees. You're a Confederate soldier, and now you're, you're just tucked into the same troop. They were just your enemy, and now you're being told to fight the Indians. It was a crazy, crazy time. And you're desperate, and you're hungry, just like everybody else. You're not rich and successful. You're desperate and hungry because that's why you fought in the damn war in the first place. Now there's these, these trains trying to get jobs. You're jumping the trains. You're looking for work. You don't fit in anymore. You've changed. You're not the same person. Now you're used to sitting around with your buddies around campfires. You're used to foraging food because the the government wasn't taking care of you, so you had to go find food on your own to offset that. Hobos. Hobos. But they became independent. These became the hobos, the late 1800s. Um, And right away, this new type of homelessness was seen as a threat. There weren't soup kitchens in the beginning. There was nothing to take care of the homeless. They were seen as an enemy. It was even called the hobo army. That was a term that if I was back in 1900 and I said hobo army, people would not. It was a very familiar term. Um, And this ratcheted up, ratcheted up. These poor people. People aren't just going to stand around and watch their families starve. People will do anything it takes to feed their kids when they're starving. So these hobos, they're turning away from society. Unfortunately... Like I said, we have this habit of the poor eating each other. They start blaming women. They start blaming minorities. Minorities are stealing their jobs. Uh, women are trying to create this domestic situation where now you have this miserable life. you got to get up at the same damn time every morning, <laughs> go into this factory, work until the same damn time every afternoon, come home, and then have all this crap you didn't want in the first place. Mm-hmm. And you don't have much of that. You never get to feel secure. 
When this was new, people could look at it fresh, and these hobos were saying, the hell with that, I don't want any of that. That looks ridiculous. We don't want it. We reject it. And that turned it in, turned into, around the 30s or 40s, the Wobblies. Um, they Which started getting organized. You don't hear really anything about that in history class. Mm-hmm. And they started getting organized, and there were all kinds of marches. Like, there was a movement of hobos all around the country converging on Washington. This happened a few times uh, in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. It was a dangerous thing. There was a revolution about to blow up in everybody's face, and it was composed of the poor, the people that weren't getting served, and they'd had enough. Um, And a large portion of that were veterans. I went and I fought a war for you rich assholes, and now you're not even going to take care of me or my family? Hell with that. No, I'm not taking it. There was a tent city um, across the street from Washington during, was that between World War I and World War II? I think so. Composed of veterans from World War I that had been promised um, pay, and they didn't have enough to live. They were waiting for this pay. So as a protest, they set up tent cities. They were like, you're going to have to look at us. You're going to have to see us every day. We're not being served, and you lied to us. You know, this is white people. We're not talking about Indians. We're not talking about black people. We're talking about white people, supposedly the privileged. Who the hell's getting served? If only the black people and the Indians and the white people had realized they had the same enemy, (laughs) maybe something could happen, but it didn't happen. They always keep us separated. Yeah, the hobos, unfortunately, were pretty racist and misogynistic for the most part. So instead of teaming up with people that could have helped them, they were rejecting a lot of the wrong things along with the right things. The army came in decimated this tent city, even shot some people. These were veterans that fought for their country. Shot them down like dogs, right in front of the White House. Don't get taught that in history. Hmm. I sure didn't. Shortly after that, we start having programs to take care of the poor. (laughs) Now, put that in context. There's a revolution about to bust out. There's so many poor people. They're roving the country. People are scared of them. There's literature demonizing these poor people. Watch that hobo sh- uh, showing up at your door. You know, God help you if, you if you left your wife at home. These hobos are rapists and maniacs and thieves. Um, yeah, but you're doing just fine because you clocked into your little job this morning and you're clocking out and you're obedient and Uncle Sam's taking good care of you. But these hobos, they're horrible. How... Do we address these hobos? We started shooting some of them down like dogs, but we can't shoot them all down like dogs because they are, in fact, a powerful force, and they've already organized a few times. What if we start helping them a little bit, just a little bit? What if we start doing food kitchens? What if we start maybe a welfare program? Because starving people are going to fight. People that are being made to feel shame for getting government assistance they're more likely to grumble. So I used to wonder, like, in this all this ugly stuff I'm learning about the government, why do we have these benevolent, like, welfare things? And the Democrats are quick to say, oh, it's because of our bleeding hearts. You know, we care so much about people. I'm starting to realize at least part of that, if not the bulk of it, is to quell a revolution. You've got to take care of the discontents a little bit, or they're going to up and haul your rich asses out of your big houses and say, guess what, people? we got to share the sandbox. So that's one way we don't have to share. We barely take care of our poor, which brings us to now. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so the poor are utilizing these programs that have been conveniently set up to somewhat take care of the revolt. And at the same time, 
making all the poor people feel that they're guilty. And I've experienced this myself, going to food pantries to get food that's going to be wasted anyway, but having to sign a list, fill out a form, give information so that I could get food that was going to be garbage in the first place. And guilt does come along with that. And you might think, well, am I taking food from someone else that might need it more? Am I really deserving of this? Should I should I sign up for their programs to help me with a skill and get back into wage slavery? And my experience is that that food that was under lock and key and then was about to be thrown out, you just take that food. That guilt that they're trying to feed you, that's the, that's the Kool-Aid. They're trying to make it that you stay in society. Yeah, we've seen the rotting food in these food pantries, and we've heard people say that work there, we wish they wish more people would come and eat it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really the bulk of what I wanted to say, was just that there's this program that's supposed to be helpful, but if we weren't put into this situation in the first place, if we were able to be ourselves the way that our ancestors were, we wouldn't need all of these programs. There wouldn't be millions of hungry people in this country. We've got enough. It's just that the food is under lock and key, and they're making us feel like unless we follow their rules in which the game is rigged, that we are doing something wrong. Yeah, and this benefit, let's not forget we're dissecting this this word benefit. Um, it seems to me that every time we come across a culture, we give them three choices, and a culture outside of our own, which means an indigenous culture by our viewpoint. Um, die, you can just fight or, or die or starve, but however you end your life soon, um, become us. In all our benevolence, we, you know, like white privilege, I love that word, that puts us squarely on top. Apparently it's a privilege to be miserable and to shit all over your own planet and destroy your children's future, but because we are such good people, we'll allow you to participate in this game of killing your children. So we spread this privilege all around. So you can become us. It's glamorous. Die, become us, or serve us. You can take some station, whether it's slavery, wage slavery, or something, and help society along. We won't really treat you like one of our own. You're not in the country club yet, but you can help, and we'll kind of leave you alone as long as you don't rock the boat. Don't try to live like, you know, the old ways. you got to kind of embrace this new class. Um, oh, man, I forgot where I was going with that. It was tied into the food pantry, but, <laughs> yeah, I was, like... I see that same thing at play now. You know, if I reject society, same three things that can happen. I mean, <laughs> I always smirk when I hear that suicide's illegal, but, you know, who's going to find me for it? So I could die. I could just get out of the way. I can serve. Um, you know, I can find some way to be helpful to the government. I can maybe join the army, you know, go over there and start murdering the right people and risk my life for the right people. <laughs> Um, or I can become society, and we all know where that's leading, but, you know, in all its benevolence, especially me as a white man, oh boy, I, I definitely have an easy ticket into becoming part of this. And what happens if I don't want any of those three options? Because anything outside of that is unacceptable. I become something called an outlaw. <laughs> this is a person that needs to be stopped. This is a terrorist. This is a dangerous person. 
the movies. Uh, oh my God, we were talking about movies this morning. A new villain that's popping up in movies all over the place is the eco-villain. We saw it in Kingsman. We saw it in First Reformed, an Ethan Hawke movie. We saw it in the new Godzilla movie, King of the Monsters. There's this terrorist that makes a really good argument about the world and that we need to be stopped if anything's going to get better. But then they do something really crazy to kind of discredit the whole viewpoint. And then the hero comes in and, uh, you know, stops them in one way or the other. The status quo is protected. And tomorrow when we wake up, thank God the villain didn't win. We're all doing what we did before. And let's not think too much about the 150 species that die every day. Um, which eventually will be one of. Yeah, which we will still <laughs> die because nobody is stopping us. And let's not forget the clever little twist on the propaganda there that wow, the villain is sounding a lot like the people that are saying we need to stop society. So if you don't think or look too closely at it, those people that are saying stop society, don't they sound like the villain in that movie? Oh, my God. Mm, The pieces are starting to connect. And another benefit of our society is supposedly security. Now, let me ask you, anybody listening to this, are you feeling secure? Do you feel secure right now? Do you feel like your future is intact? Do you feel secure with our international policies? Do you feel secure with our president? Do you feel secure with the president that came before our president? Um, When's the last time you really felt secure? And if we're also feeling so damn secure, why is it so easy to find people with manic depression, Uh, anxiety? Um, Why are so many kids on drugs? This is... A unique thing in our culture. It's happening just slowly enough, like the whole analogy of the boiling frog. You throw a frog into boiling water, he's going to panic and try to jump out. You slowly turn up the heat, and that frog sits in the water, doesn't even know he's boiling alive. We're that second frog. It's happening just slow enough that we normalize it. And damn, it's one of our best survival strategies is adaptability, and they're using it against us. Because what we're adapting to is a nightmare. It's something that we should not adapt to. We should resist it with everything we got. We should have rejected it from its inception. But we're not. It's happening just slowly enough that it seems normal. 150 species. I'm telling you, 150 species, lineages of creatures that have been on this planet since the dawn of time, adapting and changing, are getting wiped off this planet every day. And most people hear that. At the most, you might just say, oh, that's a shame. It's not a fucking shame. It needs to be stopped. Who's going to stop it? Um, So where's the security? Social security? The reason why we have social security is because you know you can't depend on your neighbors. They're not going to take care of you. If you you have not played the game correctly and you wind up in need when your body starts to fail after a whole life of serving your nation, you're on your own. You better have that social security. You better have somebody to get your back because your neighbors don't give a crap about you. If they did, you wouldn't need the social security. That's something that is unique to our culture. Indigenous tribes, that's true security. Um, They had a whole different way of looking at life and death. They knew their, their lives were short. So I'm not saying security meant a long life. That wasn't what it was about. Security meant that you're around a group of people you trust. They're your people. They are part of yourself. If you're alive, they got your back. Um, And that's something that we're taught not to have here. We're all separated. We're all isolated. And this technology is doing it more and more and more. We're separated and isolated. And, you know, kudos to you if you joined a yoga group and, like, you feel like that's your tribe, your ecstatic dance group. Great. 
but that's not the norm of what everybody else is feeling. And that becomes just another click in the middle of all this. Because what about those people that aren't in your ecstatic dance group? Are you just kind of satisfied that your kid goes to the private school and maybe is getting the better education? What about the people that can't afford it? And what do you think is going to happen with these people over time when things get worse and worse? Are they going to take it? <laughs> Would you? So where is the security? This is one of the lies that we're taught is a benefit. Uh, roads, you know, the security of having like road maintenance, the security of our vehicles that <laughs> are slowly killing us. But we have that security. We can just drive. We've got cell phones we can't make. And we, you know, the mining that's involved in the components in the cell phone that exploits people half a world away from us. This is what we're taught as security, and it's a lie, and any thinking person can see the lie behind that. We don't have security. So the benefits, that word is loaded. A lot of what we're taught as a benefit is a freaking lie, and it's exactly the opposite. Yeah, and and just to add one other thing to that, which you probably, as our wise audience, figured out, but that social security program wouldn't even need to exist if the game wasn't rigged. And that leads me to going back to justifying the benefits that we get from society when we scavenge and realizing that the way that Gumby and I live is only a temporary way. And that's because there's so much waste in our society that we can scavenge all of our food, clothing, toiletries, cleaning supplies, virtually everything it takes to keep our day-to-day existence going without having to feed into consumerism. But we realize that time is temporary. So we're basically the scavengers picking up the scraps of the society. So we're benefiting from the scraps that the rest of society has literally thrown away in a dumpster. Yeah, I used to put all my energy into wilderness survival skills, and I would be constantly frustrated because I would have to break laws. I would have to... Um, it was just really hard to see how that could give me the life I want to lead. I don't want to be, uh, you know, Eric Rudolph living out there in the mountains by myself, slowly going crazy from the isolation and the paranoia. Um, I want to feel good. I want to like be in harmony with a healthy planet and like people, you know, we're, we're gregarious people. The way wolves travel in packs, bees live in hives. Our kind of species lives in tribes. We want people. We want people we can trust. We want to spend time with people, communicate stories with people. So this wilderness survival, it kept failing me. Um, And I'm not saying it's not worth learning. I think it is. But the immediate survival is the scavenging. There's so much waste out there that if you want to drop out of society, you can do it today. And you can do it pretty easily. Um, You just got to learn a few tricks. And that's part of what we're trying to share with these podcasts. And as Teresa's saying, we recognize it's temporary. When society finally crumbles and we are rooting for it like any day now (laughs) scavenging everybody's going to be a scavenger which means all the resources going to be used up really quick and scavenging ain't going to be a thing anymore if you're a dumpster diver this is a little period in history it's the heyday of dumpster divers love it use it but know that that resource is not sustainable um So right now we're just taking a step. We know that we haven't escaped society yet. And if we ever completely escape society, it's not going to be about scavenging. But right now, it is an important, powering step away. 
we can boycott society. We can begin to starve it to, to gain momentum with our independence. So that was all about benefit. I hope I've brought up some questions about what we mean when you say, how do you justify benefiting? I don't necessarily agree with what you mean by benefiting if you ask me that question. Um, the game being rigged. Yeah, Teresa, you had a thought. I was just going to say as a comment, I've been with Gumby as he's reading all of these books and experiencing, like learning all sorts of ways. And what he just gave you in the past like 40 minutes or so, that really makes me look at that word benefit. Because how dare they? They took away how we were living. And then now society is trying to tell us that we're wrong. What a joke. Yeah. And we're forced to take these benefits. So another word um, that I pointed out in that sentence, and once again, I think benefiting is the juiciest word of that sentence. How do you justify benefiting from a society? Society is an important word. Let's look at what we mean by society. Um, as I said, I think a society in the broader term of our culture, 10,000-year culture, a 10,000-year-old story of going in the wrong direction, a failing experiment. Hmm. I would say there's a lot of talk about fixing society. And I brought this up, I think, maybe in our first podcast of why we are more for dismantling or abandoning society than fixing it. And here's why. I believe society works perfectly. Society is a beautiful machine for what it does. I don't agree with the machine. Um, let's, like, make America great again. Uh, fixing society. When you look at almost any idea on the table, from the left or the right, it has to do with fixing society. Society was meant to win wars. Society was meant to gain power and channel it to the people in power. Society was meant to keep the poor obedient and under thumb, even though there's this protest that's been going on since, who knows, maybe the beginning, it's always kept under control. Um, it's working beautifully. Society, if it was a vehicle, would look like a tank, a tank that grinds everything under its treads, that goes through and goes where it wants to, nothing can stop it, and it wins every battle because it's got the bigger gun. That's what society's been all about. Screw if you have happy children. Screw if you're happy. The hell with the citizens if they're getting served, as long as we can keep them just pacified enough that they don't rip the rich people out of their freaking houses. Um, I think of it like a bicycle. That's one of my favorite analogies. You build a bicycle. It's working really good. Something goes wrong. Chain breaks, flat tire. You fix it. Why do you fix it? Because it used to work good. Now let's say you designed a bicycle. You get on it. It's completely, the construction's wrong. It's off balance. It doesn't work. You can't reach the pedals, the handlebar. You can't steer the damn thing. It's wobbly. <laughs> it never worked. Do you fix it? No, you don't fix that bicycle. There's nothing to fix. You trash the bicycle and start again. You rebuild a better bicycle. I think that's what society is. It's that second bicycle. It's never been designed to serve the people. It's designed to turn the living into the dead because we have power over the things we consider dead. If you're an animist, it's a less powerful position, but it's a wondrous world. It's a world full of hope. It's a world where your children have a future. It's a world where fish talk and wind talks and thunder brings you messages. 
But you can't just go in and do whatever you want, because these are intelligent, sentient, powerful beings. You're full of them. It's a magical world. But if you can become blind to that, if you can overpower that, suddenly none of these things are alive. Weather? That's just fucking meteorology. It's numbers. Land? Nothing lives there. You can own it. You can sign a piece of paper because somebody else, apparently they owned it, and they gave it to you for some more paper that you killed a tree, which, by the way, hell, it was kind of useless anyway. You turned it into money. Now that's useful. Hmm. Now you have power, but it's an evil power. It's like a pact with the devil. You've got this power, but you're not happy. You're miserable. That's society. Um, It reminds me of a quote by Daniel Quinn where he says, there is no one right way to live. Now, I've posted this on Facebook before, and it got a bunch of likes. And I was like, (laughs) wow, I don't think these people are really thinking about what that means. When I say there is no one right way to live, it's not about, like, gay rights. It's not about whether you want to have your pants down around your ankles when you walk or whether you want to wear suspenders and have a beer gut. It's about a bigger picture. Our society imposes one set of values on everybody. And I don't care if you're black, white, homosexual, straight, old, young. We all live the same way, the one way. We work to get our food. We treat everything like it's dead. We own land, or we want to own land, or we don't stand in the way of people claiming the right to own land. Hmm. We want to be richer. Um, We try to accumulate wealth. We may resent the rich, but it's only because we envy them. Hmm. That's why we allow the rich to exist. Um, We allow certain people to have guns that are supposed to protect us, and we know the horrible things they do with those guns to enable our standard of living standard of living, not what you need to live. We need very little to live. What we're fighting for is a standard of living that we, only we, have decided we have a right to. This is the one right way to live. And whenever we can't encounter a people that aren't living this way, eventually we're going to get there and we're going to help them. Hmm. People that didn't need help. But now when we start helping them, they need help. Now they're trading. Consider the famine, and this is right out of Daniel Quinn. Consider the famines that we know about the world over. Ecology, nature, handles a famine. There's no such thing as a famine in ecology. There's hunger, and then there's checks and balances. Population goes down, food goes up, population recovers, food goes down, maybe there's hunger, there's ebbs and flows. The only thing that sustains hunger is outside trade. Vast outside trade, bucketfuls of food shipped into an area that can't support a population that big. We create a a situation that can never be balanced. This is not what happens in indigenous tribes. This is the way we live. And now, now, those people are in trouble and they need help. That society. One-way ethics. We're taught these ethics of honesty, of uh, service. You know, God, look at the the military poster. Serve your country. Look at this proud, young, shiny person saluting the flag. And they're serving. But usually these people are not the richest of the rich. I mean, don't we see that over and over, that the people, the vast bulk of the people in the military are poor? And what are they really in there for? Even they don't believe this bullshit about serving their country. They know what that means. They're in it for financial gain. They want to have security. They want to have that chance to go to college and have the good life that they couldn't see before. And that's what gets sold to them by the recruiters. Even the recruiters aren't trying to like sell you an Uncle Sam much. It's the, the financial deal. Basically, we're, we're trying to recruit hitmen. These ethics, when do the rich ever fight for the poor? 
When do the rich ever put their lives on the line for the poor? It's a one-way ethics. The businesses, they lie to us all the time, and we know it. The politicians, they lie to us. Marketing is a lie. We know that. We know what's happening when we watch a car commercial. Um, these are lies. These are ways to try to sway our opinion. But we're taught, if you lie, if you're just a regular Joe Schmo, that that's wrong. It's a sin. Um, you should be obedient. Maybe you'll get into heaven, and you'll get rewarded then, because for some reason it's set up that the rich get to get rewarded now. you got to wait. It's a one-way ethics. It doesn't make sense. So these ethics we're taught in our society um, are ridiculous. They're meant to keep us pacified. They're meant to keep us weak, and they're meant to keep us just going along with the program. And we can't keep going along with this program. This program is killing us. It's, it's taken the entire planet down. And I know this is a downer, but good God, when do we start talking about it? How bad do things have to get before we say, hmm, maybe I'll get a little depressed and look at this? Um. And yeah, is there anything you want to add to that, Teresa, before you go on? Um, well, I mean, I think you I think you pretty much covered it. It did remind me though of a lot of things that happened at camp this week. One time at band camp. Um, <laughs> uh, one time at Upcycle Creations Camp. So that was the name that was given to my camp that I had some ideas for like little craft projects for the kids, but ultimately Gumby and I were trying to have like the first hobo camp at this private school. It was awesome. It was pretty awesome. Um, we definitely rocked the boat and I'm glad of that. And I'll just share. Yeah. Tell them about Monday morning. <laughs> Which part? The dumpster. Oh, we decided that as part of our upcycling slash hobo camp, that it was very important to show the kids the dumpster and the anatomy of a dumpster. And this was at a private school. And um, all the little rich kids learned how to get in and out of the dumpster. So I, I would, I, I don't call them rich kids. That's a, <laughs> I disagree with Teresa on that. These kids, they're just kids. I think kids are kids. You can't help where you're born or who you're born into. So they're richer than us. I'll give them that. So throughout the week, we taught them how to reuse trash, and they were so excited about playing with literally garbage and had so many great ideas. I mean, that was, that was a thing I enjoyed the most about this whole week was how creative the kids were. Um, that did give me a little bit of hope. By the end of the week... The kids had made so many delicious beverages and dishes from food that we had gotten from the dumpster that we didn't even plan to do anything with, with the kids. So in other words, we found food, took it in the classroom, rinsed it off, set it out to dry. The kids were asking us, can we make citrus juice and pick some fresh berries and add it to there? Can we make mashed potatoes with the dumpster dived potatoes can we cook on the buddy burners that we had them make which are tiny little burners made out of garbage like tuna cans old candles melted down in soda cans that are cut in half and put over a hobo stove which is made out of a big coffee tin so these kids were so excited by the end of the week the camp director and probably some people in the office were asking us to kindly tone down 
calling it dumpster food. And even asking us if there was maybe an alternative word that we could use when describing the food that we get from the dumpster. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting in this real, uh, context of, I guess, a statement on society. We're in a private school. They are uh, a very liberal private school. You know, they are the kind of private school that you go to because you want these new progressive ideas and you know, it's not like uh, everybody's wearing a suit kind of school. It's, you know, tie-dye shirts kind of school. Um, and they're asking us not to use the word dumpster food. Now, this is not a slang word. I could take any of those people, I don't care how much money they got, go outside, point to that bi big metal object that we pulled perfectly good food out of and say, what do you call that? It's a dumpster. I could say, well, what do you call that stuff I put in my body that I chew and I swallow and I digest and it nourishes me? It's food. We're, this is not a <laughs> this is not a problem with slang. It's dumpster food. And the fact that they don't want to look at that, that they're trying to get us to tone down this word, we, we refused. We just told them, like, no, this is kind of what this camp is about, is showing the kids the truth. Because... God knows the adults aren't doing enough to change things. Maybe if enough people, like, say to screw this, like, let's start bringing the kids into it, like little Greta Thunberg, for instance. You know, let's start showing them the world that we're destroying. It's their future. And let's start showing them what we're wasting. Um, let's see what that does. Maybe we haven't tried that enough. So that's kind of what this camp is about, is taking this stuff and upcycling it, taking stuff we call trash and showing the kids, actually, this is nourishing good food. Sorry to jump in there so much, Teresa, but Oh, no, I, I actually wanted you to continue. Oh, well, um, I don't know that I have much more to say about our experience at camp. Do you have anything that, like, struck you about... Well, there is one thing. <laughs> Speaking don't of Greta Thunberg. Don't be homophobic. <laughs> <laughs> don't be homophobic. Uh, and I do like the way we ended camp by uh, talking about Greta Thunberg, and we were saying how she, you know, said we... I'm tired of hearing that... You know, these things that are supposed to make me feel hopeful. The house is on fire and I want you to act like it. The world is on fire. Like, when are you going to start acting with the urgency of somebody living in a freaking house on fire? I love that. Good on you, Greta Thunberg. And I also like that she flexed her muscle a little bit by starting that, um, like, day out of school. What I don't like is that these protests, we keep having protests. The protests aren't working. The people who can ignore the protest know how to ignore the protest. And even if you're saying, well, they eventually work, we don't have eventually. Like, people have been saying that for quite some time now. Protest is not new. And we're not talking about just, like, letting people have better jobs. We're not talking about sharing the wealth that we should not be accumulating in the first damn place. We're talking about a whole different way to live. That's the only thing that's going to save us. We can't keep living this way. And so when we're having this conversation with the kids, we suggest, <laughs> you know, think about how powerful you guys are. This is us talking to the kids. Um, what if one day you told the adults around you, you know, you guys, my teachers, the people that are running these schools, you're kind of the people that continue to get us into this mess. You're destroying our futures. And so I see no point in going to school and I'm going to boycott it, not protest, not one day. I'm going to refuse one more minute of it. Elementary school, middle school, high school, college, any school, they empty. Empty. Worldwide boycott. This is the kids. 
Imagine what that would do. What if they said, we're not going back until you convince us we have a future? I mean, really convince us. Something so deeply changed that you give us hope again. That's the power kids have. Not just the kids, but I'm hoping the kids will have more damn sense than the adults because us, and unfortunately we're included in this category, the world looks the way it is and continues to do what it's doing because of us. We didn't have the guts to do it. Somebody's got to have the guts. And if I can like get that message to the kids, great. We're still waiting to get the uh, parental response and the fallout from that conversation. <laughs> but another thing I thought was instructive is I, I held my fingers apart. And I said, if this is human existence, how big, how much a part of that span do you think we've been living in a way that endangers our future and pollutes the earth? The kids almost uniformly said this much, and they held up their fingers as far apart as my fingers were. This is something that gets taught to us in our society. This is one of the big lies of our society. This way to live is the only one right way to live. It's the way everybody should live and now does live. So if you don't know how to live on the planet, if you're a virus to your planet, that's what you are. It's a species problem. That's what society is teaching us. It's a species problem. We can't help it. We can't help it. Think of the implications of that. What I told them is, no, actually the percentage that we've been living badly on this planet in an unsustainable way is this much, and I put my fingers together as close as I could. It's barely discernible in that span. Anybody that tells you they don't know how to fix this problem is a liar or a damn fool. I didn't say this part. But we all know how to fix the problem. That huge span... Aside from that tiny little pinch that I, I motioned with my fingers, is humans living sustainably on the planet? We know how to do it. Think of the implications of that, that realization. If we think it's a problem as a species, we can't help it. We might as well just enjoy ourselves as the ship goes down. If we realize that it's a problem of a culture, we have to take responsibility for that choice. We have to take responsibility that we are choosing to pretend like we need what this tiny little pinch in human evolution gives us that is unsustainable, that threatens our future, that we need this instead of realizing and recognizing that if we live the way that all those people lived on that span when the planet was, was sustainable and healthy and clean and fish were everywhere and passenger pigeons filled the sky and people were happy and content. Nobody rushed up to our society on first contact and said, thank God you saved us. They wanted to be themselves. They were happy. We, we crushed them until they were so needy that they then they were ready to become us. And now we fooled them into fighting for their rights to become us. God damn, what a nice game that was. So that was something that like I found instructive at camp, that I realized these kids, they're not being taught that... It's a cultural problem. It's the way they're choosing to live. It's a standard of living that they could choose something different. These poor kids are thinking because they're human, they don't know how to live on the planet. Yeah, and when we get back to that original question, and we're dissecting the last word now, so how do you justify benefiting, we've talked about that, from a society, we've talked about that, you're not contributing to so what is this about contributing to a society that I don't want to continue? I mean, because I'm picking up the scraps, that's one thing. But I disagree with 
why the scraps are there in the first place. Like when I was teaching in camp how to make a plastic bag mat out of all the plastic bags that people are so nicely putting in the recycling bin, and God only knows if they're actually getting recycled. Um, I wish they weren't there in the first place. I wish all these little containers and all these spoons and all that stuff, I wish it didn't exist. I wish I didn't have to think about other ways to reuse plastic bottles. And that's because our society is damaged, is out of control on this earth. And Gumby? Yeah, and one of the things like how do you justify benefiting from a society you're not contributing to um, one of the ways that we benefit but sort of don't benefit is in our scavenging. Um, one of the reasons why we do it is in doing it, we have found a way to live that we can boycott consumerism. And I believe consumerism is the fuel for the monster. Um, another great book is uh, Against Leviathan, Against His Story by Freddie Perlman. I think I got that title right. But he goes through the whole history of our culture, but describes our culture as a monster that he calls Leviathan. And he retells the, the story of his story, his story being Leviathan's story. And it is a really good book. Um, but thinking in terms of that monster, it would die. It would starve if we didn't feed it. And how do we feed it? Consumerism. We're feeding our money into plastics, into shipment, into products, into and the more you scavenge, the more you realize where all this stuff ends up. And meanwhile, you know, we're getting all this like, oh, well, you got, all you got to do is recycle, and then the pollution and the byproducts of recycling, and then where that ends up, and you know, all these half measures, we need to get extreme. So, in the context of contributing, um. Yeah, we don't want to contribute. Society <laughs> society is the problem. So I'm very happy with boycotting consumerism where I can. Um, I've gotten into a lot of discussions about voting. I don't vote. I will not vote. Um, I love that Emma Goldberg quote, um, if voting changed anything, they'd make it illegal. Um, I've been told it's my duty to vote, even if I don't care who gets elected, even if the person that I wanted to get elected did get elected. I've been told I'm still not doing my duty when I vote. Um, so one of the reasons I don't vote is, is um, I, I see voting as consenting. Like if you vote, you um, consent. So I'm consenting to a way of life that I'm choosing some overlord, some person to make rules for me. And let's not forget what a president's power is, what a leader's power is, is to um, create a law. And what's a law? It's a threat of punishment. It's a way to rule by fear. I don't believe that's a way to, to govern things. I don't care if it's Bernie Sanders making a law or and I don't care if it's Donald Trump making a law. It's a damn law. It's the same thing. It's a way of saying, agree with my values or you will be punished, you will be penalized. And because you fear the penalty, the punishment, maybe you'll acquiesce to those values. It doesn't work. It's never worked. The world keeps getting worse, and we've been doing this for a long time. Voting isn't a new thing. And oh my God, even if voting worked perfectly, for those reasons, I'm against voting. I don't consent to that system because it does not work. And so if I vote either way, no matter who I vote for, what I've really voted for is consent to a system I don't believe in. Mm. I don't believe in ruling by fear. I think that's tyranny. 
you've got to convince people. And once you convince people when it comes from their heart, and this is Gandhi agreed with me on this. He was an anarchist himself. He said, eventually, governing has to come from oneself. That's the only true governance. Um, And you don't need politicians when it comes from you. And until that happens, there's always going to be this horrible tennis match going. One faction's in power, the other faction's in power. Nothing gets better. We're kept distracted. And we're also pacified because you feel like you have a say. You voted. How much of a say do you have? Especially when you start thinking like we do, when you're thinking way outside the box. Nobody speaks for us. Nobody brings up why there's locks on dumpsters. Nobody addresses overpopulation. Um, None of the politicians speak for me. And as far as if one's a little bit better than the other, I I don't consent to that either. I don't consent to a little bit better. Things got to get a lot better really quick, and it ain't going to come from some damn politician. I don't care who she or he is. Same thing with taxes. Taking taxes out of my paycheck, you've already, we talked about wage slavery, you've already set up a situation where I feel like I have to prostitute the finite hours of my precious life to have money and either still feel poor or maybe if I get a good enough job to be a consumer, help destroy the world and fill myself, surround myself with distractions and bullshit that I didn't want in the first place. I don't consent to that. And then you're also going to take part of that money and, again, the security we're supposed to have, feed it back into the military, a monopoly on violence. I don't think there should be like cops and military that get to have guns and all these weapons and the rest of us don't. They're supposed to be the moral fiber of our nation. Um, Oh, my God. (laughs) Who still feels that way? Uh just look at the civilians that get blown up in the Middle East. You know, oops, we dropped the bomb on the wrong place. These are the people that we're entrusting to have the monopoly on violence. They can do anything necessary to protect our standard of living. We can't do anything. We're terrorists. We're horrible people. We're shooters. We're madmen or women if we violently resist. Propaganda, bullshit, it's that one-way ethics again. I don't consent to that. Voting and taxes. So... Yeah, when you ask me to contribute to society in those ways, no. You're asking me to feed a beast that I want to see dead. Um, so maybe, you know, riding along with that, maybe there's a way to contribute that's better than just going along with a system that we don't believe in. And I've seen, like, all these different skills that Gumby has introduced as far as how to survive, whether it's in an urban situation or out in the wilderness, maybe that's something to contribute. Gumby? Yeah. So, you know, when I get asked that question, how do you justify benefiting from a society you're not contributing to? People are thinking like, well, you ride on the roads, don't you? You, uh, you know, these leaders or whatever, we need your help. For one thing, if I did vote, a lot of the people, I think they're making assumptions about which way I'd vote. <laughs> I might vote for the politician I think is the greatest weapon and will take society down the fastest. Because I don't want another smooth, polished politician that's going to keep this going. I think this needs to end. And if I see somebody that's like a complete maniac, that guy or girl would probably get my vote. Um, so I think this person that would ask this question also is blind to the ways we do contribute. Hmm. Um. I'm not contributing to society any more than I need to, but I am trying to contribute to um, finding a better way. This podcast is one way we're trying to contribute. If it gets to one person that thinks a thought they didn't think before, that's a contribution. Uh, Facebook. I'm always going on my little rants on Facebook, you know, and that's a pretty crummy 
pretty ineffective way to spread your, <laughs> your message, but it's something. There's a small contribution. Camp. That's a really good way to, to try to contribute. You know, start talking to these kids because the adults have had their chance. And we're just kind of, as far as I can tell, looking around and like, oh, I bought a Prius. You know, isn't that enough? Or, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about putting solar panels in. And uh, <laughs> look into what it takes to make a solar panel. These half measures are, and I'm being generous when I say half measure, are not the contribution. And finally, I'd say in the bigger picture, resistance is contribution. What am I contributing to? The future. I'm contributing to hope. I'm contributing to a way of life that might, might, if we can find our way there, be able to spread this fire, this life among all creatures and bring back hope and sustainability. And to me, that means not contributing to society. So is there any final thoughts you want to share, Teresa? Um, yeah, I would just say, you know, once again, we're a work in progress as far as what we're doing. Um, but asking yourself this question and then really dissecting the, the question, how do you justify benefiting from a society you're not contributing to? I mean, I find that kind of really flawed and one-sided to begin with. But then once you start to realize that, Becoming an outlaw, doing the things that are actually the the old ways, the ways in which we lived in harmony with this earth. If that's a resistance, I'm all for it. Yeah. And not only is the game rigged, but as Teresa just pointed out, even the structure of the sentence is rigged. It comes from somebody who is believing a lot of things. There's a whole groundwork laid there to even ask that question. Um so I guess that kind of finishes us up. Um, if you have any questions or comments, please contact us. We have a website called escapingsociety.weebly, as in booby or bubble.com. <laughs> and um, I am making these little cards with quotes, I think, are incendiary. Sometimes I even quote myself if that's not an ego trip. But <laughs> it's got the um, website written on the card. So I would love to hear from anybody that, like, found one of those cards and I'd be interested to know what card you got because I don't repeat quotes. So there's a reason why that card found you. So I think it'd be really interesting to see where these little seeds were dispersing wind up. And if it is encouraging anybody to um, like, what is this? And kind of check out our podcasts. Um, So yeah, I guess that does it for us. So we'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening.